The following statement is from a bartender who claims to have worked at Hulu's reality TV house party. So, it's 11 a.m. on a Monday and my entire stash of champagne is already gone. Derek Huff is going on about his Wi-Fi barbecue. Darcy Silva is living her best life in the photo booth. The mass Singer is wolfing down all the catering. I can't make mimosas fast enough. And then someone spills an entire tray of food all over the floor. Reality or not, we'll never know. What we do know, Hulu has reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. I'm Richard Blaze, and I'm a chef and restaurateur who has judged or competed on nearly every cooking show. And now I've found a way to judge on a podcast. On my new podcast, Food Court with Richard Blaze, amazing guests bring their food arguments to my court, and I settle them once and for all. You think ranch is better than blue cheese? Prove it. You hate pineapple on pizza? Convince me. The first season of Food Court with Richard Blaze is up, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The word book is one of the most powerful words in all of the dialogue about First Amendment. There's nothing more sacred than a book. And we knew the defense was going to be, you can't go after a book. That's an atrocity. So that was what we had to overcome. I made a, a very calculated decision when we first started this case. I said, we're going to go on a media blitz. I remember I was on Larry King one night. And Larry King kept calling it a book. And I stopped him dead. First of all, this is not a book. If you're going to call not this a book. a book, it is not a book. Pamphlet. This is, no, this is not a pamphlet. This is a murder manual. This is a set of instructions to commit murder. A set of instructions to commit murder. This book, manual or how-to guide, we keep coming back to it. You can't find Hitman on the shelves anymore. And this week, I'm going to tell you why. On the night of September 4th, 1998, a separated mother of two put her kids to bed just like every other night. Her nearly two-year-old son had just started sleeping in a toddler bed. And as many kids do, at one point during the night, he went to sleep with his mom, Bobby. And then, Bobby was woken suddenly from a deep sleep. Someone was lifting up her head and dropping it. She didn't have her glasses on, Everything was blurry, too dark, she couldn't see. And she couldn't breathe. The man in her bedroom had his latex gloves tied around her neck. The kids, why are you doing this to the kids? She kept trying to say. But he was choking her. Her son woke up and started screaming. And the hitman, startled, let go. So my name is Don Corson. I'm an attorney in Eugene, Oregon. And back uh, maybe 18 years or so ago, I represented a woman named Bobby who was the survivor of an attempted murder attack by a would-be hitman who had bought a book about how to do that. Bobby declined an interview for this podcast, but gave her attorney, Don Corson, permission to speak about the case. And out of respect for her privacy, we're just going to refer to Bobby by her first name. And of course, he didn't think there's going to be any witnesses after this. And so she engaged him in some conversation. They asked basically, hey, did my husband put you up to this? And again, figuring there'd be no witnesses, he said yes. Studies show the most common motive in a hitman case is dissolution of a relationship, followed by money. Very few hits are performed by, quote, masters. 
Most hitmen, it turns out, are actually first-time amateurs who want to resolve some form of personal crisis, usually a lack of money. And most of them are generally found through acquaintances. That's true of Lawrence Horn, who hired a hitman to kill his ex-wife and son for a $1.7 million estate, and it's true in this story, too. At the time, Bobby was discussing divorce with her husband, Robert, who, according to court documents, had a history of abuse, and Bobby had a life insurance policy. He approached a coworker and broached the idea. The coworker had never done anything like this before in his life, but he was familiar with Paladin Publisher products and had bought books before from them. So he went and ordered from Paladin a book called Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors, and learned the craft of becoming a contract killer. And there's just a laundry list of advice given in the book, instructions given in the book, that he followed sort of, you know, verbatim in trying to execute this uh, would-be murder. The court documents paint an unbelievable scene. Bobby had a full-on conversation with this hitman. She even asked how much Robert was paying him. $100,000, the hitman replied. Is that all his kids are worth to him? I'll pay twice the amount, she shouted back. A remarkable uh, and horrifying scene ensued in which this young would-be killer man had a wire, serrated type wire that was used to slit throats. And he went after her with that. Bobby actually got the wire between her teeth, where she held it tight. He then pulled out a knife. She got away again. Then the hitman drew his handgun, held it to her head, and ordered her to remove her son from the room. After doing this, she ran, all the while hearing a clicking sound behind her. He goes to pull the trigger on the handgun, the specific kind of handgun recommended in the book, and the gun jammed. She fought him off in the night and in the violence and in the confusion, was able to get out of the house. And she survived with scars and bleeding. The hitman then stole the family car as part of his plan to try and make the hit look like a bungled residential robbery, just like James Perry, the hitman who killed Millie, Trevor, and Janice did. He raced to the outskirts of town to meet his accomplice, who was waiting in a getaway car. They'd filled up the gas tank just prior to attacking Bobby, another tip from the hitman book. And then... He tried to dispose of all the materials used in the would-be killing ditching them in ditches and bushes and rivers and, you know, just following the game plan of the book. Bobby's husband and his co-worker were arrested shortly after, and both were sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison. Detectives had found the hitman manual in this would-be hitman's work locker. According to court documents, the hitman actually admitted to a detective that, quote, without the book, he would not have considered it at all. It gave him the confidence that he could do it. I'm Jasmine Morris from iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. This is Hitman. I promised Amelia and Trevor, I will not rest until 
all the players that were involved in their death, they are brought to justice. And there were people that said, oh, you, you can't take on the First Amendment. The First Amendment is protected. Well, it is protected, but, I mean, you can't hurt people. Marilyn Farmer, Millie's sister, was a social studies teacher. I would have taught to my kids, let's look at the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to kill and to get away with it. Murder is a crime in this country. So this book is perpetuating a crime. So that's what I would have taught to my students. And I use it as an example of, hey, you don't have absolute power and rights. Constitution doesn't give that. For two years, Millie and Trevor's family had struggled, knowing the pain and loss would never go away, but wondering what more they could do. If we can get this book off the market, and we can do something to help another family not experience this. So we talked to the lawyers that had handled Trevor's case and asked them what were our chances. We were feeling terrible about what had happened. John Marshall is a quiet, humble, and kind man who let me record him on a sunny day at a small cottage that sits on a lake shore. Every so often, a boat would pass by. We'd pause and wait for the boats and the birds to quiet down. I saw his patience firsthand. Remember, John and his co-counsel, Howard Siegel, helped the Horn family win a settlement against Children's Hospital, the money that ultimately cost Millie and Trevor their lives. John grew quite close to Millie, her sisters, and Tiffany, so revisiting all of this while on vacation probably wasn't ideal or easy. We're lawyers, we're not doctors, we're not psychologists, we're not therapists. So it was like, what can we do? We're not gonna right this wrong, but what can we do to sort of get some kind of value out of this? Not in a monetary way, but in a legal way, in a, perhaps in a moral way, if we could. How can we help this family? For Howard and John, along with Millie, Trevor, and Janice's families, it felt like someone or something was still at large, another accomplice of sorts. We met in the Montgomery County Law Library in the courthouse. I said, what do you know about the First Amendment? And John said, I know that it comes first. And we had a good laugh about that one. We actually pulled out a copy of the Constitution and we read it. At this point in their careers, Howard Siegel and John Marshall were both civil litigation attorneys. There was really nothing on their resumes that would qualify them to go after a book publisher and argue about the limits of the First Amendment, something as sacred and central to the American law as anything in the Constitution. Nonetheless. I said, John, I don't care what it says, this shit cannot be protected by the First Amendment. Howard, define the shit. The shit is a murder manual. This was a recipe for murder. They were teaching people how to become hired killers. And I said, we got to go after these guys, meaning Paladin Press. So in 1995, Howard and John helped Millie's family file the civil suit Rice versus Paladin Press. Rice is Vivian Elaine Rice, another one of Millie's sisters. And so we set off on this, I think most people thought, very quixotic endeavor. And we filed a lawsuit against them and immediately got enormous publicity. This 
became a huge deal because we were attacking the press. Janice Saunders' husband, Michael, and their seven-year-old son were also listed as plaintiffs in the lawsuit. We haven't talked a lot about Janice in this podcast because no one in her family was up for talking, understandably. But so often when this story is told, Janice is simply reduced to her occupation, the nurse. But she was also the mother of a young boy. She was a sister, a daughter, a wife, and a friend to many. She loved horses, nature, cross-stitching, and life. She was 38 when she was killed. I have had a few phone calls with her husband, Michael. He didn't want to be recorded, saying, I declined an interview only in a sense that I've tried to move on with my life. But he also said, I would like to speak about some of these things. You've told me stuff that I did not know. I didn't know Pater was dead. And if you don't remember history, you'll repeat it. He said there's way more to the story than what people perceived. And these stories expand as decades go by not just after a jury decides what is and isn't going to happen. So I'll quote or paraphrase Michael Saunders from time to time. He had his own attorney, who also declined an interview, and he remembered eventually joining forces with Millie's sisters in the lawsuit against Paladin Press, mostly for his son Colin, who lost his mother at just four years old. He told me, Peter Lund saw the carnage of war in Vietnam. I was in Vietnam too but I didn't come back and publish books about baby bottle bombs. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey listeners, I'm going to take a moment to tell you a little story about the night before my wedding, when I decided I'd color my hair, you know, add some shine before the big day. I bought a box kit of hair dye from the store. An hour later, I had red hair. Not the beautiful, natural kind. The fire engine red kind. In a panic, I ran to a drugstore down the street to look for another box of hair dye that might fix the problem. It was pouring rain. I was soaked. Rehearsal dinner was in 40 minutes. And I had red hair. Not good. I did find a color to cover it, but that was after using two boxes of hair dye that left my eyes burning from ammonia and other nasty chemicals. The moral of this story, don't do what I did. Check out Madison Reed, at-home hair color made with ingredients that you can feel good about. No ammonia, no parabens, no PPD, and it works. Get ammonia-free, multi-tonal hair color delivered to your door for less than $25 at madison-reed.com. Use promo code HITMAN and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Again, that's promo code HITMAN. Hey listeners, I'm going to take a moment to tell you a little story about the night before my wedding, when I decided I'd color my hair. You know, add some shine before the big day. I bought a box kit of hair dye from the store. An hour later, I had red hair. Not the beautiful, natural kind. The fire engine red kind. In a panic, I ran to a drugstore down the street to look for another box of hair dye that might fix the problem. It was pouring rain. I was soaked. Rehearsal dinner was in 40 minutes. And I had red hair. Not good. I did find a color to cover it, but that was after using two boxes of hair dye that left my eyes burning from ammonia and other nasty chemicals. The moral of this story, 
Don't do what I did. Check out Madison Reed, at-home hair color made with ingredients that you can feel good about. No ammonia, no parabens, no PPD, and it works. Get ammonia-free, multi-tonal hair color delivered to your door for less than $25 at madison-reed.com. Use promo code HITMAN and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Again, that's promo code HITMAN. I was obsessed. Again, Howard Siegel. It's just all I thought about for years. I put most of my practice on hold. I woke up in the morning thinking about this and went to bed at night thinking about it. It was just all-consuming. As Howard and John were preparing their suit, they went looking for advice. They eventually met Rod Smola, a law professor and First Amendment scholar. He thought we were nuts. Everybody thought we were nuts. Brandenburg versus Ohio will kill you. Everyone warned them about this case and the precedent it set. It was a case involving a KKK rally in Ohio, and they arrested the speakers. And the court said that that was impermissible. They're entitled to their speech. Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about the Brandenburg case during her confirmation hearing, saying that the 1969 ruling was one of the great milestones in Supreme Court history. Brandenburg against Ohio, truly recognizes that free speech means not freedom of thought for those and speech for those with whom we agree, but freedom of expression for the expression we hate. And the only way you can arrest them is if that speech is likely to produce imminent danger. This is what John and Howard were grappling with. So that's the test. Is it likely to produce imminent danger? How could a book that's published in Colorado, that's sent to Detroit, that was purchased a year before, that resulted in a murder, be argued as likely to produce imminent danger? That was the big problem. I talked to Tom Kelly, the press lawyer who represented Paladin in this case. He spoke with me the week he retired from a very long and distinguished career defending media organizations and their First Amendment rights. You know, I struggled with opposing people who were trying to recover for the loss of loved ones. Uh, I didn't enjoy that particularly. But if you're going to do First Amendment work, it comes with with baggage like that. And one has to accept that and uh, soldier through it. As we know, Paladin publisher Peter Lund genuinely believed it was his right to publish this information. And his customers bore the full responsibility for what they did with it. David Dubro, the former Paladin employee we heard from in our last episode, told us. When you attribute motivations to inanimate objects like books and videos and firearms and edge weapons, then at that point you're living in an animist universe where something can get up and start attacking you on its own, which is, which is crazy. Paladin actually had a legal defense fund set up so readers could help them fight this legal battle. You have a right to know how to make a truck bomb. Use it or lose it, because freedom is for everyone or no one, read one email blast. Your freedom to read is under attack. Okay, setting aside the question of whether anyone has the right to make a truck bomb, the larger consequences here are real. I mean, the idea of limiting speech in a free press, that's scary. The whole business was, hey, here's information you can't get anywhere else. This is where you can go get it. 
And it's wrong to say that you can't get it. It's wrong. Like suppressing knowledge, suppressing information, it's stupid. You can't do it, especially now. But it was an objective wrong. I'm a journalist. That's the foundation of pretty much everything I do and believe in. All these years looking into the Hitman book have led to some seriously uncomfortable questions. I get the implications. I'm not alone in that. My name is Paul McMasters. I am retired now, but served as a national authority on First Amendment issues as a First Amendment ombudsman at the Freedom Forum. He was also a newspaper editor and testified before Congress on First Amendment issues. I talked to McMasters just last week. I read the book more than once. I felt nothing but disgust. It did not incite me at all to go out and kill somebody or to share with somebody else that, hey, if you want to kill somebody, here's, here's a way to do it. It is the easy way out when confronted with the sort of vile speech that this book represented, but I see absolutely no way over time how that could be separated from other kinds of speech that come close to that or go farther than that even. Because of that exact concern, a lot of surprising allies rallied to Paladin's defense. When we filed this case, you know, we knew that the First Amendment community was going to just pound us. I mean, they were going to come after us with guns blazing. The First Amendment community is probably the most powerful lobby in the world. You're talking about the publishing industry, the movie industry. 16 media organizations, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, ABC, the National Association of Broadcasters, all came out in support of Paladin's position. They jointly filed an amicus brief that said, quote, Allowing this lawsuit to survive will disturb decades of First Amendment jurisprudence and jeopardize free speech from the periphery to the core. No expression, music, video, books, even newspaper articles would be safe from civil liability. You're talking about radio. You're talking about television. Walt Disney, Minnie and Mickey Mouse were just all over my ass. There was just wholesale panic in the First Amendment community. They were worried about the proverbial slippery slope. If we let Siegel go after this book, he's going to be going after the Bible next and fiction and, you know, all kinds of things. Of course, I learned afterwards that uh, the reason slopes are slippery is that lawyers grease them with bullshit. So on the one side, you have Paladin and the heaviest heavyweights in media. And on the other side, you have Howard and John and the victims' families. And I'll let John tell you what happened next. The district court judge didn't even give us the time of day. He said, I agree. Brandenburg wins. Off you go. It was like three minutes. <laughs> so this case was closed. But as we know, Howard wasn't going to let one decision stand in his way. And here's where I want to explain a really important part of Howard and John's theory. And to understand it, let's go back to something Tom Kelly, Paladin's lawyer, said to me. The books published are very unlikely to be the cause of criminal conduct, murder, mayhem, what have you. Howard and John's theory hinged on the word cause in terms of Brandenburg versus Ohio. They realized that if you're arguing that the books are the cause of the violence, you're going to lose. But what if you can convince people that a book aided the killer 
and that the publisher intended it to be used that way. Our theory was this speech aided and embedded the murder. It was not just, I hate you, or even go kill that son of a gun. This was, I'm telling you how to kill somebody. This is people profiting off the death of innocent people. When I did the aiding and abetting research, I remember there were almost no cases. Nobody had ever used it before. I mean, you had to go back to almost ancient England to find aiding and abetting cases. They were very, very rare. This is what qualifies as aiding and abetting under the law, which is more common in criminal cases as opposed to civil cases like this. But Howard said anyone who counsels, commands, induces, procures, or provides substantial assistance to another to commit a crime or a civil wrong is jointly liable with the person who commits the crime or civil wrong. I mean, the most obvious example is the mafia boss who tells one of his hitmen to go kill Joe Banana. Whack him. He's, he's going to be uh, eating at Alfonso's at 8 o'clock. And the FBI happens to have a wiretap on the conversation with the hitman. Well, the day of trial, if the mafia boss's lawyer stands up and says, Your Honor, this is protected speech. It's protected by the First Amendment. I mean, the court's response in a dignified way would be, are you shitting me? An order to commit murder, you're saying, is protected by the First Amendment? It's simply a method that you're using to facilitate a criminal act. Tom Kelly, meanwhile, was busy preparing a defense that basically boiled down to, this book is completely absurd. The book, in my view, was reasonably clearly intended for entertainment. You know, you have a hitman by the name of Rex Farrell, which literally means king of the wild animals. The book begins with a prologue that reads like a typical fictional account of an assassination, like something in Tom Clancy or uh, Vince Flynn. This was going to be their defense at the trial. John Marshall. And nobody would really take this seriously. But the answer was, James Perry did. What's weird about this argument is that it's disproven by the book itself. Right before you get to the table of contents in Hitman, there's a disclaimer. It says, Neither the author nor the publisher assumes responsibility for the use or misuse of information contained in this book. For informational purposes only! Exclamation point. Informational purposes, not entertainment. There's nothing that says don't take this book seriously. And there's a warning that tells readers making an unlicensed pistol silencer is against the law. But it says nothing about laws against murder, conspiracy to murder, or assault. Howard told me these kinds of disclaimers never hold up in court. And beyond that, his argument was this wasn't a case of misuse, because he says the book was used exactly as Paladin intended it to be used, based on the fact that it was written as a how-to manual. Howard likens it to a cookie recipe. If you publish a recipe on cookies, you expect people to make cookies. It's not convincing at all. That's one of the things that always irritated me about media coverage. It assumes there were those 22 specific esoteric details he followed to the extent he followed any, and, it, and the proof on that is weak. There are common knowledge in the criminal world and general knowledge to the general public through popular literature. Tom Kelly, to this day, doesn't believe James Perry learned much from the book, much less followed it. 
any plaintiff who wants to recover money has to prove causation. We'd anticipated an argument that the book gave Perry the confidence he needed to pull this off. That's something certainly not credible in view of his long criminal history in which he actually shot and wounded a police officer. Clearly, the murder would have occurred regardless of what was on Perry's nightstand. And we know this because we dug into the facts. And James Perry got caught. So that's the other part of the argument. It must not have been a very good book. Also... This book was sold, you know, not through channels calculated to reach hitmen only, but through national bookstore chains. I mean, I don't know what a hitman-only channel would even look like. But the point is, not everybody who bought this book or read the book turned out to be or turned into a hitman. It was available in lending libraries, and it actually sold 13,000 copies before this happened in the late 90s. It's unthinkable that uh, 13,000 hitmen bought this book. It's almost unthinkable that 10% of that did. It was sold to a general, undifferentiated audience. And with that kind of marketing, it's hard to see how either the publishers or the readers could consider this a serious technical manual for independent contractors. Now, this is really, really important. Before this lawsuit progressed, all the parties agreed to a set of facts that would eventually come out in trial. Paladin Press stipulated that James Perry followed numerous instructions from Hitman in planning, executing, and attempting to cover up these murders. That they knew and intended that this instructional manual would be used by criminals to commit criminal acts. They made this admission in what's been called, quote, almost taunting defiance because they were confident they had First Amendment protections. And of course, the first time they sat before a judge, Paladin was right. But with their aiding and abetting theory in hand, Howard and John filed an appeal. We went up to the federal Fourth Circuit and we drew uh, Judge Ludig, who is a pretty conservative guy. Uh, actually, a very conservative guy. I think he's been considered for uh, the Supreme Court by every Republican president. Judge Michael Ludig was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in 1991 by former President George Bush. Before that, he was an assistant attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice. So we get to the argument, and we're up first, and Ludig comes in, and he's got a notebook, maybe three inches thick, with... I'd say 200 colored tabs. I had no idea what any of this meant other than we were pretty sure he was prepared. So the argument begins, and my sense was, oh my God, we're getting creamed. This is how appellate arguments go. If the judges are engaged, they love to basically make you feel like you're a complete idiot. And then the other side got up, and Ludig just let him have it. It was so clear that he was not ruling for them. It was 30 minutes of him tearing their case to shreds. His opinion was that the First Amendment did not protect this speech and that our theory of aiding and abetting was valid. So we we got our victory. Judge Ludig reversed the lower court's decision, saying they'd misunderstood Brandenburg. He wrote a 65-page opinion that I 
distill down to one sentence. And that one sentence is, this shit isn't protected. Again, Paul McMasters. Well, I was, I have to tell you, a little bit surprised. As others have noted also, Judge Ludig uh, seemed personally offended by the existence of the Hitman Manual. And from my perspective, it led him to make a wrong decision. This opinion is really something. Judge Ludig lists passages from the book, saying these selections are, quote, but a small fraction of the total number of instructions that appear in the 130-page manual. And the court has even felt it necessary to omit portions of these few illustrative passages in order to minimize the danger to the public from their repetition herein. I thought a lot about that when making this podcast. You've heard us quote the book quite a bit. But what we've shared, that's a fraction of the passages this judge even included. Anyway, he goes on to say, After carefully and repeatedly reading Hitman in its entirety, we are of the view that the book so overtly promotes murder in concrete, non-abstract terms that we regard as disturbingly disingenuous both Paladin's cavalier suggestion that the book is essentially a comic book, whose fantastical promotion of murder no one could take seriously. He's basically saying Howard and John's aiding and abetting theory applies in this specific case. Ludig also outlines why and how this case is special. He says, Paladin's astonishing stipulations, coupled with the extraordinary comprehensiveness, detail, and clarity of Hitman's instructions for criminal activity in murder in particular, the boldness of its palpable exhortation to murder, the alarming power and effectiveness of its peculiar form of instruction, the notable absence from its text of the kind of ideas for the protection of which the First Amendment exists, and the book's evident lack of any arguably legitimate purpose beyond the promotion and teaching of murder, render this case unique in the law. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Boost Mobile. Want to solve the case of your slow, frustrating, and excruciatingly painful network? Here's a clue. Step up with Boost Mobile. Boost Mobile has a super reliable, super fast network, so you can stay connected almost anywhere. And when you switch, you get four lines for $25 per line per month with unlimited data and four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones. Perfect for keeping everyone in your family happy. Boost Mobile plans also include mobile hotspot, unlimited music streaming, and no annual service contract. So don't settle for the crime of an agonizingly slow and painful network. Step up with Boost Mobile today. Limited time offer while supplies last. New customers only. Requires port and activation from eligible carrier. One free device per line. Users using more than 35 gigabytes of data during a billing cycle may be deprioritized during times of network congestion. Offers and coverage not available everywhere. See BoostMobile.com or retailer for full details. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Kara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Judge Ludig's opinion was a big deal. 
This has never been done before. A federal judge said a publisher could be held liable for publishing this kind of content, meaning instruction manuals, allowing the case to move forward to trial. They took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied certiorari, which means they let the decision stand. The legal precedent was set. Never before has such a lawsuit prevailed, as one Washington Post article put it, going on to say, quote, Never in the modern history of the First Amendment has a court found the printed word capable of this kind of incitement to imminent lawlessness that would remove free speech protection. But again, all of this was just legal theory at this point, establishing grounds for the Rice versus Paladin civil trial. That was the next and final step. So John and Howard began the discovery process. We decided we wanted to take the deposition of Peter Lund, and so we did that out in Boulder where his offices were. And that was Howard's deal. This was his baby all the way. For the first time, Howard and Peter Lund came face to face. Howard called him an imposing-looking guy, who clearly looked uncomfortable and nervous as he anticipated the traps Howard was about to set for him. They sat across the table from each other in Paladin's conference room. Howard asked one question after another. He said Lund sat with his arms folded and kept his answers very short. There was no hostility, just a quiet arrogance. This lasted eight or nine hours. It was an all-day deposition, and... Lund was a formidable foe, didn't give in a bit. But Howard was very clever. And at one point, he was going through the catalog of all of their books. And finally he says to him, I see here there's no, there's no book here about how to blow up airplanes. And Lund admitted that we simply don't do that. There is a line somewhere. There is a line. A Washington Post article from 1998 said Lund once wrote to the author of a then-forthcoming book, Revengeville, Sick Humor for the Deranged Mind, saying, quote, We're editing out some of the more heinous acts you propose, as they are not only illegal, but in bad taste. Illegality does not particularly trouble me. Bad taste always does. He wouldn't publish hate literature either, or books on poison, too easy for children to fool with, though information on the latter did manage to make it into Hitman. But in this context, Lund's standards didn't help his case. He was dead meat after that. We walked out, Rod and I said, you know, gee, he was tough. And Howard had it all in his head already. He had already had it pictured how he was going to play portions of the deposition to a jury to get to the point where there's a line. And he was right. All these years later, Howard is still unsettled by what he says he saw in that deposition. I said, Mr. Lund, you know that people are going to use your publications to commit murders and criminal acts, don't you? And he said, possibly. And I said, do you care? And he said, no. And that was the end of the deposition. Michael Saunders told me that he was brought in to watch this deposition at one point and remembered Lund saying this. Saunders said, They were there to make money, and he didn't care that a four-year-old's mother was killed because of a book he didn't need to publish. Here's Howard. This was my experience touching evil. 
and I touched it twice with Lawrence Horn and uh, then Peter Lund. People who just don't care. People who have no compassion for the consequences of their acts. Once again, Paladin's lawyer, Tom Kelly, has a different view. That is not the Peter Lund I knew. He felt strongly about the First Amendment, but saying he didn't care was not something I remember. I would want to say I doubt that occurred unless someone can show me the deposition. I've been trying to get it, actually, but haven't been successful. These 20-year-old cases tend to disappear. It's just the way it is. At this point, John and Howard were confident they would win over a jury. But it would never actually make it that far, in part because this happened. Authorities in Littleton, Colorado, were securing the scene of a deadly school shooting so they could make a final body count. As the community... This is news footage after the 1999 school shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado, about an hour south of Paladin's headquarters. ...searching for booby trap explosives left behind by the two suspects in the Colorado school shooting. The Columbine shooters didn't specifically use how-to manuals from Paladin, but they did use the Anarchist Cookbook and other how-to guides they found on the internet to make homemade explosives. I had the nation in shock. We were very concerned. it um, It was a terrible environment in which to try a case like this. It was clear that it was going to be hard to find a jury sympathetic to Paladin's arguments. So just days before trial... On May 21, 1999, Paladin Press's insurance company agreed to settle the case out of court. Well, I was delighted that I was not going to have to talk to a jury and tell them I can understand all the sympathy you feel for these people that have been through hell. But we're going to have to ask you to follow the oath you took and look at the facts of this case and decide what brought this crime about, what made it happen, how it happened, and whether this book had any significant role in it or whether it was entirely dwarfed by the greed, by the uh, will and the stealth of Lawrence Horn. Paladin's insurance carrier was calling the shots. I went home with a combination of uh, relief and regret. And the question was, why did we settle the case? And the answer was simple. It was two pieces. One... We had won the law already. It was never going to get better than what we had already done. And two, Janice Saunders' family. I mean, she was the big breadwinner in her family, and she left a husband and a little boy. They needed the money. So we settled the case three days before trial. We said, you have to give us all of the books. Take it off the market. And they did. Later, this was posted to Paladin's website. Quote, Circumstances and changing times have caused Paladin to scale back publishing some of the more controversial material it had been known for in the past. After the settlement of the Hitman lawsuit in 1999 and the passage of legislation making it legally treacherous to distribute information on explosives, the company stopped publishing some 80 titles on explosives, demolitions, improvised weaponry, and self-defense. So, of course, the book was on the Internet two weeks later. The Hitman case was happening as the Internet was taking off. So, in a way, for John and Howard, the battle against Paladin was won, but the war was lost. And nowadays, this issue is just as pressing and irresolvable. And just as we've done with some of the hate sites recently, 
we should look at trying to close down the servers and things like that if we see that they're being used to export violence of some sort or they're being used to foment terrorism. Again, terrorism expert Neil Livingstone. There's no good reason, but it's not as easy as it was when it was printed literature. If the government had had the will, they could have shut Peter Lund down and taken him to court and things like that. And they could have contained the problem at that time. But they let it get out of hand. All that stuff has seeped into the public domain now. And uh, it's all been posted on the internet. There's another irony in the timing here. When the Hitman book was used again, in the unsuccessful hit on Bobby, the Hitman in that case bought the book just months before the decision in the Rice versus Paladin case. A few months more, and he wouldn't have been able to buy the book from Paladin. But he did. In using Rice versus Paladin as a precedent, Bobby sued Paladin in 2002. They settled again. So the Rice case, the decision, its implications, it's either murky or crystal clear, depending on who you talk to. Everyone's drawn a different lesson from this case. I asked Tom Kelly, What's the most important thing you'd want people to take away from this story? That things are rarely as simple as they appear, at least in this case. But it's reasonably clear this book did not inform these murders. You know, I I find it hard to imagine a case of one human being intentionally killing another who happened to read a book on how to do that. I interviewed John and Howard 25 years after Millie, Trevor, and Janice were murdered. And even though they prevailed in both cases, the medical malpractice case and the hitman case, John called it very bittersweet, and maybe even more bitter than sweet. Even so, Howard also says this. It's what every young lawyer dreams, uh, that one day he'll have a case like this, where he can come out of the gray. Because most of the law is practiced in, in the gray. You know, is there a case out there that's black and white? that's good versus evil, where there is no moral argument on the other side? You know, am I ever going to have a case that's totally clean? And this was that case for me. I think the other thing we do as lawyers is we're sort of all looking for redemption for not having done enough right. And that's what you hope for. And for Millie's family? Did it make me feel better? No. It didn't take away your pain. It didn't take away my pain. I'm sure it didn't take away Tiffany's pain. Hopefully, we've saved somebody from the pain that we've gone through. That was the whole goal. And I think we tried really hard to just make that impact that this was wrong, this wasn't okay. I think we did, but you can't really control this type of information. And all that fear around whether this decision would be detrimental to the rights of free speech in a free press, Michael Saunders told me, all they're ruling on is one specific case. They're not saying you can sue over whatever you want to and win because of this ruling. And here's Howard's take. The slope was not slippery. There hasn't been a single decision that has expanded it. No work of fiction. No movie no television show, no writer has ever been held liable for somebody misusing his art. That brings me back to the writer who started all of this, 
Rex Farrell, Paladin agreed to protect him. As the publisher cooperated in the Horn Perry criminal trials in both of these lawsuits, handing over correspondence, phone records, payment records, the author's real name is nowhere to be found. And so we've come back to where I first started. My curiosity around this book, and who wrote it, why they wrote it. I'm not looking to dox anyone, call them out, or hold them to some kind of reckoning. But my sense was that there's got to be more to this story, and I'm going to take you through what I've learned over the last few years. I just wanted some answers. So I started asking around. What do you know about the author? Rex Farrell. It's a woman. It's about all I know. Do you ever know anything about the author of the book? If I remember right, it was a woman who wrote the book. And it was a woman who who was not a hitman. I don't think she was a professional hitman. I think she was a mother, a divorced mother of a couple of kids, and she was writing a book to make enough money to make the rent. In Paladin's effort to make this look all like this was a big joke, that this really was just a comic book, they revealed that the author of the book, with a pseudonym of Rex Farrell, was actually a woman and that she just made all this stuff up. She may have ultimately been involved in writing things, but I, I can't believe she was anything other than duped. That's next on Hitman. Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. Our supervising producer is Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikador and me. Mixing by Josh Rogeson, Michelle Lance, and Jacopo Penzo. Our fact checker is Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Andrew Goldberg, Michael Garofalo, Tori Paquette, Lucas Riley, and Bill McQuay. Our theme song by Elise McCoy and additional music, written and produced by the students at Dime, powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what resounds and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. Subscribe now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get podcasts.